Throughout this year on Louisiana Considered, we've strived to bring you stories that are diverse, interesting, thoughtful, and celebrate the uniqueness of our state. So if you like our show, and if you're feeling in the holiday spirit, we ask that you show us some support so we can keep bringing you more of the stories you like to listen to. You can make a donation on wrkf.org donate or wwno.org donate. Thanks, and now here's the show. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. On today's show, we are looking back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. For that, I'm joined by Louisiana Considered managing producer Alana Schreiber. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Diane. I'm wondering, as we reflect on 2023, have there been any stories that have really stuck out to you? Oh, there are plenty. But one I really enjoyed was the conversation with Mary Perrin and Beverly Fusillet, who discussed their book, Healing Traditions of South Louisiana, Prayers, Plants, and Poultices. Yes, I remember them. What did you learn from that conversation? Oh, there was just so much information. I tell you, I was fascinated by the healers that heal with prayers. They call them traitors. And the fact that these plants, medicinal herbs, are hidden in plain sight as they are everywhere in South Louisiana, even the cracks in the sidewalks if you know what to look for. And these ladies swear by their power to heal everyday ailments. I could have talked to them all day. I thought it was fascinating. I first learned about traitors when watching the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers about World War II. In the show, there's a combat medic named Eugene Rowe, who's actually based on a real person from Bayou Shen. In the show, Rowe talks about growing up in the bayou with a grandmother who was a traitor and the ways in which her approaches to medicine and healing influenced him. It seemed that in all the darkness and dismalness of serving on the front lines of World War II, being able to connect to those traitor roots was something that brought him a sense of hope, or at least a sense of purpose. So when I listened to your conversation with those authors, it felt like I was finally getting some answers to some of those questions I had back when I watched the show years ago. Well, with that, I think it's time we give this conversation a second listen. Beverly, Mary, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Can you each start by telling me how you became interested in this subject? I know that you are both from the area of South Louisiana, known as Acadiana. So what were your early influences of Louisiana's unique healing traditions? Hi, this is Beverly. Um, I guess I got introduced to this because the tradition of traitors or healers that heal with prayers ran in my family. I was what they call treated as a child for sunstroke. I am from parents who were both uh, farmer's kids and their parents actually did use some of the plants in the yard to help heal themselves and their children. And this is Mary. I didn't grow up with any traitors in my family, but I had an art gallery and about 15 years ago, the art gallery was uh, in Lafayette and we, during Festival International, we had a traitor. We invited him to come because we knew that the tourists and the festival goers would have 
aching backs and sore feet and everything. So we got a traitor to go and treat him. And everybody walked away after their treatment, just so happy, smiling. And it, it was wonderful. And so later on, I just asked him, his name was Alan Seymour, um, you know, how did how did you get to be a traitor? And he said it was passed down. And he said, well, I said, well, how does anybody else get to be a traitor if it's not passed down? And he said, well, all you have to do is ask Mary. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, I'm asking. And he said, sure. So I met him at Burger King <laughs> and over French fries and Cokes, he taught me the prayers and taught me what to do. And that was, that was 15 or so years ago, maybe 20 by now. And uh, I've been at it ever since and just loving it. Of course, the title of your book mentions three distinct healing approaches, prayers, plants, and poultices. Let's start with prayer. Tell us about the role of religion, spiritualism, and perhaps even voodoo when it comes to these healing methods. This is uh, this Beverly. We, we base the book on what's happening around us in Acadiana. And the prayers, it's such a Roman Catholic tradition. There are so many Catholics here. It, it just made sense that we would absolutely use those Roman Catholic prayers to treat. And they are passed down. They are very specific. Some of them are very specific towards a certain illness. And we do have some general prayers that, you know, treat everything. The plants. Mary and I are both master gardeners. And so we, that's how we met. We work at a healer's garden that is located, located at Vermilionville. Creole culture, Acadian and Creole culture village. It, it's a long name. Yeah, historical. Yeah, <laughs> historical village. Folk by folk. It's in uh, Lafayette. In that garden, we specifically grow medicinal plants that we know were used by the Acadians, Creoles, and Native Americans. And poultices, we just needed another P word, and it just made sense to follow <laughs> because some of those plants, a lot of them become teas. That's where, that's how we're going to get our medicine out of those plants. But some of them do become poultices. They are topically applied to, you know, to your wounds or your aching joints or swollen areas. And uh, I don't know, the three words just work well together. And speaking of plants and poultices, tell us more about using the natural world and environment when it comes to healing. What were some examples? So an example, the most common thing in Acadiana, the most common medicinal plant, it's in English. The English common name of it is ground cell bush. But in our area, no one knows it by the English name. Uh, we all know it. Even though people don't speak a word of French, they know the word of that plant in French, and it's monglier. And so you just take a branch of that off, you just break it off, wash it, drop it in boiling water and let it steep. And that's great for any kind of winter ailment, aches, pains, fevers. Um, it works for all of them. It tastes terrible. So uh, things that you can add to it to make it a little bit palatable are honey and cinnamon, or orange juice. Uh, when my son had COVID, he put whiskey. A lot of people put whiskey. It really works, but you have to keep taking it. You, you take maybe um, two cupfuls of tea a day uh, until you don't have any fever symptoms anymore, and then you can stop. We are speaking with authors Beverly Fuselet and Mary Perrin, who co-wrote the book Healing Traditions of South Louisiana, Prayers, Plants, and Poultices. 
in your book, you write about different healing traditions for Louisiana's Cajun, Creole, and Native American communities. In which ways do those groups have different and similar approaches when it comes to health and wellness? And and this is Mary. I will say that um, way all three of these groups were French speakers, all of them. The uh, Native Americans had been converted to Catholicism in the 1600s by the Jesuit priests who taught them French. And then the black slaves came to Louisiana from Haiti where they uh, worked on sugar sugar plantations. And it was a Haiti, Haiti, which was Saint-Domingue at the time, was a French colony. So they learned French. So they all spoke French. They were all Catholic. And so uh, all the traditions were pretty easily passed from one group to another that way, through the religion and through the language. Unfortunately, very few people know how to make the medicinal remedies anymore, but the medicinal plants are still here. They're everywhere. They're under your feet. They're in ditches and fields and scrubby places. Uh, They're even in the cracks of the sidewalks. Mother Nature is so generous. They're still there. There's a little um, plant that grows in the cracks of the sidewalks at Vermilionville at our garden, and it's called Pony's Foot. And if you pull it out from between the cracks of the sidewalks and wash it off and drop it in boiling water and let it steep to make a tea, it will lower your blood pressure. So, I mean, these plants are amazing. They, and, and they will sometimes cure three or four or five or six different conditions. I know that writing this book had to involve a lot of research. What were some of the most surprising things you learned? And who were some of the most influential people you spoke with? This, this is Beverly. And I uh, did want to mention, you asked about the most surprising When I uh, got to the plants and it took about three and a half years to, you know, do that research. But the most surprising thing was how old I kept finding Hippocrates name coming up, the Greeks, the Romans, even the Druids. And I realized that these plants were way more than just something that grew around them. They associated them with a lot of um, superstition. So I was surprised about the um, the breadth and width of history that went with every single one of them. They've been on this planet a very long time. And, and one more thing that I learned that was exhilarating was the strength of the oral tradition. I found I was uh, in the archives at UL and I was looking up traitor prayers and I, a lot of the um, healer traditions in different cultures um, borrow from each other. So I found that there is a group, they are the Pennsylvania Dutch powwow. I don't know where that name comes from, but I can only imagine. I found a prayer that they used in a publication from 1828. And I kept researching and I kept researching and they speak Pennsylvania Dutch, which is a form of German. So I went further back, further back. And then in the 1500s, I found the same prayer from Germany. And I just kept going, I kept going, I kept going. I found the same prayer. And then of course they're all translated into English. I found the same prayer from the 1300s. So that's how strong the oral tradition uh, has been over the eons. And that was exciting to me. 
Beverly Fusilet, and Mary Perrin, who co-wrote the book Healing Traditions of South Louisiana, Prayers, Plants, and Poultices. They will also be featured authors at the 2023 Louisiana Book Festival. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome, and thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. On today's show, we are looking back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. And for that, I'm joined by Louisiana Considered's managing producer, Alana Schreiber. Hey, Diane. That conversation about traditional healing methods was so delightful. So in addition to that story, what else has really stuck out to you from the past year? Well, I really enjoyed my conversation with New Orleans nightmare, Howie Kaplan. Many people know him as the owner of the Howlin' Wolf Bar or the manager of the band Galactic. But roughly one year ago, he began a new role at the helm of the city's office of nighttime economy. That's right. When he first stepped into the position, our former host Carl Lengel interviewed him about some of his goals. What did you learn about what he has accomplished so far in his first year? Well, when we last spoke, he was looking for more ways to support workers in the nighttime economy, like creating specific parking zones for them and working with the Regional Transit Authority, RTA, to create a shuttle specifically to transport hospitality workers downtown. But I also know he faced a bit of controversy. What was that all about? His office had a lot of complaints that he was hard to reach or unresponsive. But when we asked him about this, he insisted that some people just didn't have his correct emails and phone numbers. He also reminded us that he is working in an office of one, which creates some hurdles. But next year, he hopes to be able to communicate with more of the people he is trying to serve. Well, as we prepare to give this interview a second listen, what do you hope listeners can take away from this conversation? Well, it's apparent to me that Howie Kaplan, having been in office for only one year, is serious about this city's nighttime economy and about getting more input from neighborhood residents and musicians about needed changes to spur more growth in this industry so both can coexist in harmony. Well, you did speak with him over a month ago. So have there been any updates since then? Yes. Since that time, he's been able to add some staff members, so it's no longer just an office of one. He's looking into more opportunities to make lives easier for all French Quarter workers and is currently working to provide free parking for mental health and hospitality workers. And he's expanding the Narcan Behind Every Bar program. His office will not only put the overdose-reducing drug in multiple French Quarter venues, but will also conduct Narcan training sessions along with the health department. That's incredible and much needed. So with that, let's encore this conversation. Howie Kaplan, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Diane. Howie, let's back up for a minute. How did you find yourself leading the Office of Nighttime Economy? How exactly did this position come to be? You know, you can wish upon a star. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm teasing. Um, So I'm I'm also the precinct captain for a group called the National Independent Venue Association. And they had this thing called called the Save Our Stages Act, which was a $16.25 billion um, arts bill that was bipartisan, went through Congress, and its goal was to uh, save and support independent music venues. You know, they were the first to close, last to open out of the pandemic. And uh, and it went to nonprofits, performing arts centers, 
um, you know, Broadway. And um, you see the power of of an office like this, in particular for a city like New Orleans, where our culture is everything. Our culture is our dollars. And so as you, you keep going through the process, we put together a political action committee with a, a number of restaurants, bars, music venues, hotels. And the only ask was to be was to be recognized, to have a seat at the table. There's a, a great Ann Richards quote I really, really love. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think the former governor of Texas, uh, she really nailed it in that. And so we started the process and, and recognized that the administration and several council members had already started the process. In 2019, uh, they hit the road and they went to uh, two other places that had nighttime economy offices in, uh, in Seattle and San Francisco. And so this was something that had already started. Right now, there are 18 of these offices nationwide. But I love to think that New Orleans, because of our culture, because it means so much to us and so much to the rest of the world, that we get to lead the way in this. And for people who may not be clear on the position, how do you describe the role and its responsibilities? Oh, my. Um, it, you know, it's it's a little bit of everything. Some of the best advice I got was to sit there and listen. And so for the past year, uh, we've been listening to, you know, different businesses, neighborhoods, neighborhood groups, the council, the mayor, um, the public safety team, including, you know, the, the, the superintendent, including the police captains. Um, there's so many things that it can be. Um, but for us, you know, my job is to advocate for the nighttime cultural economy of the city of New Orleans and her culture bears. And it's a huge honor to be able to do that, but it means something a little bit different every day. I was told this week, and it's something we've been pushing for, that the Office of Safety and Permits is going to have a nighttime person on. So they'll be on Wednesday through Sunday. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing that in a lot of the other agencies as well. And, and it's exciting to be a part of that because this is really a, a team effort from everybody. What would you say have been some of your biggest accomplishments in the role so far? Um, you know, I'm real excited about a few different things. There, there's one that we announced a, a, about a month or so ago that was the musician loading zones. Um, so musicians don't get parking tickets while they're you know loading and unloading their gear. It was a, it was a big deal. And it's something, again, uh, 2019, the council had put it through and I had no idea it existed until, until we started asking questions. And it had just never been implemented. And so we went through the process with the various departments and, and got it unveiled. Um, huge win coming out because it's a first step in recognizing what we can do to help our content creators and our culture bears. Um, you know, the Narcan behind every bar program that we've been working on pretty consistently. It's uh, definitely in the interest of public safety. You know, we're talking about people that are, that are poisoned. Um, and when they're poisoned, we have the ability to use the hospitality industry to create, you know, a safety, a safety line. Um, we're working with EMS right now on the NOPD on on Mardi Gras, where we're going to be going along the route and seeing places where we can, you know, place AEDs, where we can do more Narcan training, where we can do stop the bleed training and showing the power again of, of the hospitality industry. Um, you know, I'm real excited that we're bringing actually the National Independent Venue Association conference here next year. That'll be 1,500 to 2,000 people. Um, that's a lot of heads and beds. And so we're excited about that. Uh, right now, working with four different promoters and ways to um, replace that void that was lost by uh, voodoo music experience not happening and you know on Halloween weekend and you know the buku music experience you know so we're working with a bunch of different entities and we continue to grow and evolve um, very excited that we just had a new hire on this Monday and as of uh, a week from Monday uh, the office will be at full staff so we'll be able to do a ton more outreach and a ton more uh, ton more work we are speaking with Howie Kaplan New Orleans's night mayor. Critics say your office has been difficult to get in contact with. Calls and emails 
have gone unanswered. Is it fair to say your office hasn't been as responsive as it needs to be? So it's it's funny you bring that one up. So, um, no, I think we're actually quite responsive. But for the longest time, I was an office of one. Um, but there was an article that came out that talked about, you know, somebody couldn't get a hold of me and I actually ended up reaching out to them. Um, they had had my wrong email address. And so, you know, for a time, we didn't have a phone number. We didn't have a website. You know, thank goodness we have a deputy, a deputy now who has a ton of experience in helping us navigate this. I'd never been in government service. So we finally have a, a website that's up. You know, you go straight to the Office of Nighttime Economy through NOLA.gov. You get straight to NOLA Nightmare at NOLA.gov. Um, but it's, it's, I think, a lot easier now that we've gotten the right email address, the right phone numbers, and we do our best to be responsive. Um, and it's going to be a lot easier now that the office is at full staff. And, and our goal in this process, again, we have no enforcement power. And so us working in conjunction with all the various city departments, with the council members, and as a representative of the mayor and the cultural community, um, we want to be that. And if we're not, please call us again and again and again, or please write us again and again. Um, sometimes it's just there's only so many hours in a day and so many hours in a night. And uh, I'm not going to pretend we're perfect at on it. You know, there are times that there will be so much that comes through. It's difficult to get to it all. Um, but we're finally, I think, uh, I think reaching our zenith and, and the ability to handle it and to implement programs and to uh, and to better advocate for all the culture bears. Let's remember, there's 50,000 people in the hospitality industry in the city of New Orleans. That means in every single neighborhood, there's a culture bear. There's somebody that's related to the industry. So our job isn't just to advocate for bars or restaurants or venues. It's for the people that live in those neighborhoods, too. Let's dig into some of your current work. I know you're working with the Regional Transit Authority, the RTA, to explore creating a shuttle specifically for hospitality workers downtown. Tell us about this project and why this is a priority for your office. Well, it's a... this one goes to another place that's actually trying to start a, a nighttime economy office, and this is in Cleveland. And they did a workforce development survey. And what they found is one of the top three th- reasons people are leaving the hospitality industry was transportation. And that really kind of it kind of struck a nerve because we recognize that it's tough for people to get to these jobs and to get home. And And when we talk about nighttime economy, we're not just talking about Again, bars and restaurants are just the quarter. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the hospitals and the, you know, you know, the health district that's going on over there. We're talking about the airport. You know, when your flight leaves at five or six in the morning, someone's got to be there, you know, at three or four to get the job done. And so we're talking about all of that. So we're really excited about this survey because I think we're asking the right questions. We can't get those answers until we start asking those questions. So if you go straight to, again, the Office of Nighttime Economy, right on NOLA.gov, we've got that transportation survey there. And we're, we're doing a, a ton of outreach as well, including the Hotel and Lodging Association, the Louisiana Restaurant Association. You know, we're, we're, we're pounding the pavement, getting people to, to fill this out so we can better work with the RTA when they're putting in these new programs. I like the idea of a circulator. Again, that's something that I think would, would be good. But we're also looking at parking. You know, we're looking at two different areas um, outside the French Quarter that will hopefully get hundreds of cars out of the quarter and, and give people a safe place to park and get to work in time. Howie Kaplan, director of the New Orleans Office of Nighttime Economy. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Diane. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guests, authors and tours, Mary Perrin and Beverly Fusilet. 
and New Orleans Night Mayor, Howie Kaplan. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.